0: On any given Sunday, we try as a team to find a group of songs that best reflects um, the overarching tastes, I guess you could say, here at City Church. We try to fit that style weekly to try to hit every single demographic in a certain way. Um, But we came across a song uh, sometime a few weeks ago that we thought would fit perfectly with pieces of this sermon. Though this song may not fit your taste, may not be something that you are used to listening to, maybe not something that you would listen to on your own. Today I would encourage you to hear the lyrics, think about what they mean, and then as we talk about Samson today, remember those lyrics. This isn't a worship song. This isn't a song. It's cold. <laughs>
1: I got it. Oops, sorry. I was carrying that uh, lectern with one hand and I was trying to demonstrate Samson here with my strength. As Nate said, and as you can see from the video, we're in the second week of a series on the highly enigmatic Old Testament character Samson. And if you have a Bible with us this morning, like if you turn with me into Judges chapter fourteen, uh, Judges chapter fourteen, I'll meet you there in just a few minutes. We live in a cultural moment in which there is a shocking amount of confidence that is expressed in our opinions, with often little more justification offered for that confidence than merely "I just think," "I just feel." I mean, think Twitter, think Facebook, think social media in general. Lots of opinions. Very little justification other than, I just think, I just feel. And on the one hand, fair enough. Freedom of speech guarantees everyone the right to weigh in, to throw in their two cents, to offer an opinion, no quarrels with that. On the other hand, though, it would seem prudent of the people listening to or reading those opinions, not to mention the people offering the opinions, to ask, how do you know that what you think you know is true? How do you know that what you feel is true? Why are you so confident in your perception of reality? Now, without sounding too academic, there's a whole division of philosophy that's devoted to this question, and it's called epistemology. And it asks that very question. How do you know what you think you know is true and consistent with reality? Now, I realize that as soon as I use the word epistemology, I sound like an unemployed philosopher, And it doesn't sound very relevant, doesn't sound very fascinating. So let me just take a stab at making that word a little more relevant. Let's say that I ask you to climb the tiny little ladder inside one of our closets to the top of the city church steeple. We get to the top of the steeple and I open the hatch. And I suggest to you, hey, there's a little old wooden ledge up here that we can stand on together. Let's climb out on that and look out over the city. And so I step out onto the ledge and as I do, it creaks doesn't quite break, and it it cracks, it doesn't break, but it creaks and cracks. I extend my hand to you, and I say, come on up, don't be afraid. I think it will hold both of us. I mean, I just feel it should hold us both. How confident would you be in my epistemology? I think, I just feel. That's the epistemological basis that I'm giving you for my belief in the strength of this little old ledge, 300 feet above the ground would you step out onto that ledge with I think I just feel as my epistemology of course you wouldn't why because there's this truth called the law of gravity that doesn't care about what I think or I just feel and if we fall we die You know the world works according to certain objective scientific laws but it also works according to certain objective moral laws that God has has built into it. And if your perception of reality violates those laws and principles, regardless of what you think, regardless of what you think should be true, regardless of what you just feel should be true, you will crash violently upon the rocks of reality. At the end of the book of Judges, there is this little line that summarizes the condition of the nation of Israel at the time that Samson was born During the period of time covered in the book of Judges. And it goes like this. Here's the verse. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, there's another translation that puts it this way. I like this one better. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds remarkably postmodern, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the song that Nate and the band just performed. Sounds like a culture very much like our own in which people ignored God's objective truth about reality and everyone just does as they just think, as they just feel is right. That's what they did in Israel. And as a result, the nation of Israel during the book of Judges is in chaos. They're living under the rule of the Philistine nation and they are on the verge of national extinction. But as we saw last week, out of sheer grace... God intervenes, and he announces the birth of Samson, who will deliver Israel from the Philistines. Samson's birth was so auspicious, we saw last week. In fact, in many ways, it sounded like the birth of Christ himself. It's so auspicious that we're expecting greatness from Samson. But as we open chapter 14, a number of years have passed, and immediately, there are some very real red flags with Samson. Let me show you. Verse 1, chapter 14. The text says that Samson went down to Timnah. Now, Timnah was a town about three miles from where Samson was born, and it was occupied by the Philistines. I want to read on. It says, Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw. Note the word. if If you have a way of noting it, note the word saw. It says, he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen, note the word seen, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a white wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now skip down to verse 7, and we'll come back uh, in just a moment. But watch this. Verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Red flag number one, the deliverer from the Philistines wants to marry a Philistine. That's a problem, wouldn't you say? Yeah, red flag number one. Red flag number two, I highlighted the words saw and seen in verses one and two because they represent a recurring theme that we're going to see throughout all of Samson's story. Verse one says, he saw there a young Philistine woman. Then in verse two, he tells his mom and dad, I have seen a Philistine woman. And he sends them to go get her for him which was the custom back then, kind of kind of how marriages were arranged. But notice something. He doesn't talk to her until verse 7. So he just sees her, thought she was hot, <laughs> decides out of lust he wants her, and sends his parents to, quote, go get her for me, like she's a commodity that he's entitled to. His parents who know his destiny, who know what the angel of the Lord said to them about who he was and about the fact that he was going to be the deliverer, they're incredulous. Uh, hey, Samson, uh, you know how we've told you since you were little that an angel appeared before you were born and told us that you're supposed to be the deliverer of Israel from the Philistines and all? Probably, Samson, if you're going to be the deliverer from the Philistines, you shouldn't marry into the Philistines. Not a good look, not a good plan. To which Samson responds with a childish temper tantrum. No, I want her, get her for me. This is Israel's deliverer, people. And as we said last week, not only is Israel in danger of national extinction, but also God's plan to rescue the world through a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, is in danger. The future of Israel and the hope of the world depends upon this guy. And I'm going to tell you that night when his mom and dad climbed into bed, dad must have said to mom, we are screwed I mean, seriously, all hope seems lost, right? Red flag number two, the deliverer of Israel is a woman objectifying misogynist. Another way to put that is that the deliverer of Israel is Harvey Weinstein. That's a problem. Would you agree? That's a problem. But that's not all. Red flag number three. And this one's a little more subtle. In verse three, when Samson throws his little temper tantrum and says to his dad, get her for me, she's the right one. He uses the word, it's a Hebrew word, he uses the word yashar when he says that. In verse 7, when the text says that he finally talked to her and he liked her, same word, yashar. And do you remember I told you a moment ago that the book of Judges ends with this, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Same word, yashar. Red flag number three, the deliverer of Israel is no different than the rest of Israel. He lives no differently. Israel goes after foreign gods. Samson goes after foreign women. He's just doing what seems right to him. Never mind God's plan for his life. Never mind God's law, which told Israel not to marry into pagan cultures, but to remain a distinct culture. Never mind what his parents tell him. Samson is going to do what he just thinks, what he just feels is right and all hope seems lost here. Three red flags right off the bat with Israel's deliverer, things look bad, very bad. But in the midst of these red flags, there's a glimmer of hope. Go back to verse 4. Verse 4. Samson's parents have told him this isn't a good plan, son. Samson of course ignores that. The narrator of the story tells us something, sort of inserts this for us, something that his parents didn't know in the moment, couldn't have known in the moment. And uh, the New International Version of the Bible, which I use, puts it in parentheses to make this clear, that this is sort of an insertion, as the narrator looks back. He says this, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. In other words... As concerned and distraught as Samson's parents must have been, they could have had no idea that God was at work behind the scenes using their son's bad decision to confront, to create dissatisfaction with the Philistines that Israel itself should have already been feeling, but wasn't. And he's doing this so that he can deliver Israel from national extinction. Here's how I said it last week. For those of you who are here, it bears repeating. God can write straight with crooked pencils. He's using Samson's freely chosen disobedience to bring about his plan. That's how, pro- that's how sovereign God is. That's God's providence. He can write straight with crooked pencils. Now let's move on. Read from verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother as they approached the vineyards of Timnah... Suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I kind of think that's a funny illustration. I mean, I I couldn't tear a young goat apart with my bare hands, but okay. Uh, But he told neither his father nor his mother. He told neither his father nor his mother. Notice that, what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he, note the word, What's the word? Saw. He saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he did what? Not tell them that he had taken honey from the lion's carcass. Now, why doesn't Samson tell his parents about killing this lion? Because listen to to me on this. If a lion attacks me and I kill it with my bare hands, I'm telling everyone I know. Okay, why isn't he doing it? Well, here's the deal. If you were here last week, you may remember that before Samson was born, the angel of the Lord told his mom this. He said this, verse 5, chapter 13. You don't have to turn there. I'll put it up on the screen. It says, you will become pregnant. He's talking to Samson's mom. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. Now, what's a Nazarite? Well, stick with me here for just a moment. God included a provision in the Mosaic Law that he gave to Israel that if someone was so moved... Like, they could consecrate themselves to the Lord for a short period of time through what he called a Nazarite vow. And without going into all of the whys behind it, the vow included three things. This is just a temporary vow, by the way, for most people. It was a way to consecrate themselves to the Lord for a short period of time. Okay, it involved three things. No strong wine, excuse me, no strong drink, like wine, liquor, that kind of thing. No cutting of the hair. And then third, the person making the vow was never to be around a dead body during the time of the vow. Why never a dead body? Because God and death do not go together. Mosaic law was teaching Israel that God is all about life. and Death you may recall from the Garden of Eden is one of the effects of human sin. So they are never to be around a dead body during the time of this vow. Now Samson, Samson was to be a Nazarite all through his life, not just for a short period of time, because Samson ...had been consecrated to the Lord by the Lord himself. Now Samson wasn't wrong to kill the lion. But as a Nazarite, if Samson cared about his calling from God... ...and if he cared about God's law... ...he would need to go through a lengthy restoration ritual... ...provided in God's law if he had been... ...if someone had been around a dead body while they were taking the Nazarite vow... But Samson didn't want to do that. Samson got a woman on his mind. Taking time to go through the restoration ritual would have cramped his style so he doesn't tell his parents because they would have made him do the restoration ritual. And to make matters worse, later when he returns to Timna to marry the Philistine girl, notice verse 8, uses that pesky word again that keeps showing up with Samson. Sometime later when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. Samson saw the, the honey and ate Because it just felt right to him, even though he wasn't supposed to be near a dead body. Just like he saw the Philistine, honey, and wanted to marry her, even though he wasn't supposed to. Okay? He doesn't care. He's going to do what he just thinks. What he just feels is right. That's what we're supposed to see here. Now, in the interest of time, I want to just tell you what happens in the intervening verses. You can go back and read them later today on your own. At the rehearsal dinner, essentially, the rehearsal dinner, before the wedding, Samson makes a bet with a bunch of Philistines who are at the dinner. It's a big bet, and it's got very high economic stakes. And the bet essentially consists of this, that he's going to tell them a riddle, and he says, I'll bet you that you can't guess it, you know, if you, if you don't guess it, I win, and there's economic stakes associated with it. And if you do guess it, I lose, and I pay the economic stakes. And uh, the riddle that he tells them is found in verse 14. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. All right? Now, what's the answer? Well, he's talking about the lion. He's talking about the honey from the lion, of course. Well, there's no way the Philistines could ever figure this out, but they don't want to lose this high-stakes bet. So they go to Samson's fiance, and they threaten her to tell them the answer to the riddle, or they'll kill her family. So she cries, and she begs Samson to tell her the answer. And she says, if you don't tell me, you really don't love me, fine. After seven days of this, he finally says, fine. And he tells her the answer, which she in turn tells the Philistines. And the Philistines come to him in verse 18 with the answer, and they do it in a very, very clever way. Here's what they say. Look at this, verse 18. It's very clever. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Now, it kind of sounds like they're playing Jeopardy here. But this was a very clever, what was so clever about their answer was that not only did it answer Samson's riddle, but the answer itself was a riddle. Can you answer it? Can you answer it? Think about it now. What is sweeter than honey and stronger than a lion? Do you have the answer? Here's a clue. How did they get the answer to Samson's riddle? Samson was able to fight off the power of a lion, but what power was Samson not able to fight off? What is sweeter than honey and stronger than a woman? Somebody said, oh, I said, I said, a woman, what's, what's, what's sweeter than honey and stronger than a lion? The allure of a woman. That's what Samson couldn't fight off. And the narrator is foreshadowing for us what Samson's demise is going to be. Anyone here ever heard of Delilah? That's still to come. Now, Samson, in response, being the romantic that he is and the champion of women that he is, replies in verse 19, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. My heifer. You get a sense of how he thinks of women? Now, before I tell you what happens uh, next, I I I just want to make this point. Okay, I just want to stop and make this point for for a moment. Because I think this is really important. God's solutions are not bound by human imagination. God's solutions to our problems are not bound by human imagination. Now, I don't know about you, but there are times that I find myself obsessing over solutions to the problems that life throws my way. They feel like riddles. I don't have an answer. I can't figure them out. And I get to obsessing over them, and and, and because I can't imagine a solution, I conclude that there isn't a solution, that God could never solve whatever problem I'm facing, that he could never use it for good, that he could never come through. But let me ask you something, who would have ever imagined that God would rescue Israel from extinction through the antics of someone like Samson? Who would have ever imagined that? i got a problem I want to give you, and I want to see what your solution is. Here's the problem. New York City is one of the most secular cities in the world. It is arguably also one of the most influential. If you wanted to get the word out to the rest of the world through New York City that Jesus is king, how would you go about it? Like, how would you do it? What would be your solution? Feel free to talk amongst yourselves if you'd like to. How would you do it? How many of you would say, how many of you would come up with this solution? Let's use, I got an idea. Oh, this is a good idea. This is a godly idea. Let's use a bipolar hip hop artist who's the husband of a woman who got famous from a sex tape. How many of you would have come up with that solution? Now watch this, a Twitter account called Pop Crave tweeted this picture last week. It's a picture, if you can see the bus in the background, you may not be able to see it, but it says back there, Jesus is king and it's promoting Kanye West's new gospel-themed album. How many of you would have come up with that solution? And listen, I don't know what to think about Kanye West. I'm not here to vouch for him. Is he real? Is he a fraud? Is he a real believer in Christ? I don't know, neither do you. All I know is God used Conway, yes, Conway, Kanye West, sorry. <laughs> Let me just say Jesus. That's easier. All I know is God used Kanye West to get signs up all over New York City that have been seen all over the world proclaiming the truth that Jesus is the King. That's not how I would have done it. But by the way, I didn't get signs up all over New York City that went all over the world that said Jesus is king. If God can use Samson, why can't he use Kanye? And if God can use Samson, and if God can use Kanye, why can't he use you? His solutions to your problems, to my problems, are not bound by our imagination. I don't know what situation you're in, I don't know what problem you're facing. I don't know what trial you're in. I don't know what tribulation has come your way. All I know is the more you stew over it, the more hopeless you will feel because you can only come up with solutions that are limited by your imagination. Better to read Samson's story and repeat this to yourself. God's solutions are not bound by human imagination. Okay? Here's something else, though, that you really need to see from Samson's story. Samson does in the story what he just thinks, what he just feels, is right in his own eyes. Decides to marry a Philistine woman. How does that turn out? Well, here's the end of the story. I'm just going to tell it to you. His Philistine fiance tells her fellow Philistines the answer to Samson's riddle. You know that. They in turn go to Samson with the answer to his riddle, win the high stakes bet. We already covered that. Now Samson gets furious and in retaliation he kills the Philistines who cheated. The Philistines' girl's father won't let him marry her daughter. And so in anger, Samson burns the Philistines' fields. They then kill the girl he was supposed to marry. And in retaliation, he kills more Philistines. Here's how one commentator put it, working backward through this whole disaster. Here's how I put it. I'm going to put it up on the screen so you can read along with me because it's a little complicated. The Philistines want Samson. Do we have that slide? Here we go. The Philistines want Samson for slaughtering their own people. But he had done this because they had killed his fiance. But they had done this because he had burned their fields. But he had done this because his father-in-law had given away his wife. But he had done this because Samson had gotten angry and left. But he had done this because his wife had given the riddle's answer to her kinsmen. But she had done this to avoid being burned up by them. It's a downward spiral of death and destruction and degradation and chaos and despair, because everyone in this story, including Israel's deliverer, is doing what they just think, what they just feel is right. When a character on your favorite television show, or when your favorite blogger or influencer, or your best friend or whoever says about some moral issue, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Or I just feel like there isn't anything wrong with fill in the blank. Do you ever ask, what's the basis for their opinion? What's the epistemological basis for their opinion? Because you see, God has revealed through the scriptures how he has wired reality. And Hear me on this. What you just think or what you just feel about morality just doesn't matter. The Bible stands in opposition to contemporary Western culture's narrative of individual freedom to define reality for ourselves. Reality is defined by God and revealed in the scriptures. And to live counter to reality is to invite chaos, despair, meaningless, hopelessness, addiction, broken relationships, destruction, and death into your life. That's what it is. And likewise, if you've come up with your own ideas, of who God is based upon what you just think and what you just feel you need to ask yourself why am I so confident in my own perception of who God is the uh, the playwright George Bernard Shaw once wrote that God made man in his own image and man has returned the compliment you're playing a high-stakes game when you try to shape God in your own image God has revealed himself in the Bible, and hear me on this, it doesn't matter what you just think or what you just feel about God. God is not defined by your perception of Him. And unless your perception of God is aligned with the revelation of God in the Bible, your perception of God is warped, and it will lead to eternal death, regardless of how you just think God should be or what you just feel He should be like. The most important thing that anyone here in this room has to do today, this week, this month, this year, the most important thing that you have to do isn't whatever's on your to-do list, I can promise you. The most important thing that you have to do is to seek out reality in the Scriptures. Because who God is and what the laws and the principles of reality are, are not a riddle. God has outlined all of it right here in the Scriptures. And if you try to live contrary, you will crash on the rocks of reality. And the song that Nate and the band sang earlier, this dude, whoever the dude is in the song, keeps saying he does what he pleases, but he keeps saying he never gets it right. But at the end of the song, he keeps thinking with no justification that if he just keeps doing the same thing, maybe he'll get it right this time. You know what that's called? That's called insanity. And what does that bring? Despair. Despair. What you just think or what you just feel about morality doesn't matter. God has defined reality in the scriptures. What you just think or what you just feel about who God is doesn't really matter. God has defined himself in the scriptures. That's the most important task that you have today. This week, this month, this year, this decade, your life. Is to seek out reality in the scriptures. Let me just close with this. When we leave Israel's very flawed deliverer, Samson, in this passage of scripture, he's knee-deep in the blood of his enemies. That's how Samson will liberate Israel, by killing their enemies. But much, much later, another deliverer will come. And instead of being knee-deep in the blood of his enemies, he's knee-deep in his own blood. On the cross, Jesus fought his enemies by loving them into friendship through grace And 50 days later, the very people who had put him on a cross are being baptized in his name. On the cross, Jesus changed how we deal with enemies and how we define power and strength. Power looks like sacrificial love. Strength looks like humility, not pounding your enemies into the ground. Listen, if you want to know who God is and how God works and what he's about, Stop listening to yourself, stop listening to your friends, stop listening to your favorite blogger or influencer, and look at Jesus on the cross. That's who God is in all of his holiness, all of his justice, all of his graciousness, all of his forgiveness, powerful enough to defeat sin, loving enough to die for you. And instead of saying, Father, destroy them, he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Think about that. They do not know what they are doing. When the Jewish people and the Romans put Jesus on a cross, it seemed right to them. It just felt right to them. They asked for the criminal, Barabbas, to be released and for Jesus to be crucified. But Jesus said that their perception of what was right and what was wrong was terribly flawed. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Any chance the same could be said about you? In your perception of reality. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord Jesus. Forgive us for trying to shape you in our image. Forgive us for assuming that somehow we, in our limited wisdom, can bound you by our imagination. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that unlike Samson, you are a deliverer who loves your enemies, forgives your enemies, and who dies for your enemies, who sheds your blood rather than our blood. You died the death that we deserve so that we could live the life that you deserved. And we thank you so much for that, Lord Jesus, and we worship you today. If there are people in the room this morning that have never understood this about you, who you are, and what you've done on their behalf, I pray, Lord, that you would today gently, through the power of your Spirit, convict them of their own sin and bring them to a place where they look to you on the cross and trust in you and you alone for eternal life. And that you would begin now to transform them through the power of the Spirit of God. Lord, we thank you, we worship you, we celebrate you in your name today. And it is in your name that we worship. Amen.